and good morning and welcome Rihanna Brown. Thank you. How are we today? How am I? How are you? I'm, I'm feeling good actually. I've just arrived um, off the back of a jam session with Sister Rosetta Tharp this morning. So not with her clearly, but alongside her. So for those out, for those out there that don't know, who, who is Sister Rosetta? What's her, what's her, what's her deal? She, good question. I, I think she is the, the godmother of rock and roll music. I don't know if I'm, that's an injustice to her. Um, the first, I think she was a, a gospel singer, but can shred a guitar like you would not believe. So she was a bit controversial, maybe in the 40s. Um, bl- blues, gospel music, mixed with secular kind of music, pre-Chuck uh, Berry Keith Richards and, and any other kind of... Yeah, I've seen some black and white footage of her playing, you know, it must be 1940s or something, and she is dangerous. Yeah. But isn't it, isn't it and we, we, can, we can talk more about that, but isn't it, isn't it funny again how um, history and media, like you said, everyone knows Chuck Berry and, and, uh, and Bo Diddley and, and Muddy Waters and, and all these, uh, you know, the blues pioneers who all happen to be male... And um, and someone like Sister Rosetta, who predates or you know was doing stuff at around the same time or even earlier, uh, you don't hear about. It's a funny thing. The past, it, it's it's a concept. It's an abstract. You know, so we tell the story of the past just as we do of the future. So there's parts of the past that are missing, and I kind of fumbled across that as I'm learning about. Uh, Digging into the history of rock and roll music and, and women's role in that. This is just, of course, something that I do between like 10.30 and 11.30 p.m. of an evening. But, yeah, it's, it's amazing. to. What are the other stories that haven't been told from our past and our future, I guess? Yeah, I, 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 found, um, I found this blues guitarist, J.B. Lenoir. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but I, no. and I found him through... I think it was either Clint Eastwood or Martin Scorsese. There was this whole blues series of all the blues guitarists and this guy, J.B. Lenoir, and uh, never heard of him. And, oh, my God, like, uh, it's... Uh, and his his background was only he's very political at the time of... Uh, a lot of his songs were... A lot, of, a lot of blues guitarists were doing the blues, but they weren't singing about what their life was really like on a daily basis. And wow. and he would he would he would write songs. You know, there's a song called Ala, you know, all about Alabama and what it's like to live in Alabama in the in the um, you know back in the in, back in the 40s 50s. And uh, yeah, and I and I think there was a an element of I think it's one of those stories where he. You know, again, died at an early age, but mm-hmm. one of those tragic stories again of couldn't get um, taken to a white hospital, and he was really ill, and but was basically by the time they had to get him to a hospital that would take a black person, uh, he didn't make it. Wow! And uh, this is still modern history, really. It's, yeah, it's kind. Of, that's really intriguing. It's like music as a. Um, uh, a, a social archive, almost, yeah. of the past where, you're right, we didn't really hear a lot of that through uh, music through that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, we, and we, so we've jumped into the past, and let's just, so, um, which is the opposite of where we're going to be going and talking about. So, what do you, what do you do? What's your, what's your gig? Yeah, well, God, that's a... I feel like it's a bit of a, a loaded question for, for a modern worker. Um, I'd probably frame it through the lens of like a mutant professional, so a hybrid of identities, a hybrid of different things, um, insights, experiences. Uh, technically, by trade, um, now, my second wave career, perhaps, I'm a futurist, Yeah. Um, which always elicits a whole range of reactions from people. Well, um, it's a, it's a, it's become a, there seems to be a lot of people who have something to do with future in their, in their job titles all of a sudden. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the, I don't know, it, it, it suddenly it, it becomes a word. So what's your, yeah. what, what, what is your take on in, in terms of, yeah, that you have futurist or you, you, you 
in terms of where you're going or what you're thinking. What does that word mean for you? What does that mean, a futurist? Good question. I think it means different things to different people. So uh, I've got an academic training in Foresight. I've been doing that for the last five to six years, I think. But um, So there's almost a spectrum. There's, there's that end of the spectrum and then what we would call pop futurists. So overnight it's kind of my new LinkedIn title because I'm talking about technology. So big difference between the range, I think, there. Um, how would I describe it? This, this is always a wicked question for futurists. Um, I probably see it as a few things. I describe it in a few ways, but really it's about uh, almost structural change. Good, a lot of futurists are macro historians, so we look back to look forward. Uh, patterns of change, it's not uncommon to hear um, anthropologists also involved in this space. Uh, we're looking at kind of big structural change over time, but the part that really interests me the most probably is the, the psychological element of it. You know, it's, it's the, when we do our most powerful work, I think it's helping people step away from the present and ask more elegant questions. Yeah. Um, what have we assumed here? Yeah. You know, what, what, what worldviews have given rise to this image of the future that we have? Um, what are we missing? What's the shadow? What, you know, who's privileged in this image? Who isn't? Um, all of those kind of dynamics about our images of the future because the future hasn't happened. There's no, there's no future facts. So really what it is is our ideas and images in our head. Yeah, because you know, a lot of people, when they naturally think of the future, think of the Jetsons kind of future yep. or it's the whole we're living in a simulation man uh, or it's, again, we're going we're gonna to become the robot and as, as human beings naturally uh, almost evolve over time with the parts and, and, and I, you know, hearing about what Elon Musk is planning with deep drilling into brains and putting out, mm. I don't know, fibre access directly into the net and all this sort of stuff. But that's almost where people go. Like it's, a, it's, a, yep. it, it's almost a futurist isn't um, a 10-year thing with people. It's almost a 1,000 years. It's, 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 it, it goes so far out. So it's... It's a good point. And I think, um, you know, the question for me is then whose images are they? I always talk about the politics of the future. It's mm. like we, we assume that that image is set. So we feel very subservient to that future. But again, part of what we do is about agency. Everything that we do is about the present. And it's really unpacking those constructs about who projects those images, who's privileged in those images, who isn't in the room, um, what have we assumed uh, from the past into the present and what might be changing. So it's really in that dynamic that we can consider a whole range of alternative futures. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's when, you know, it, you know, when people study history, it's like history is written by the winners. It's, yeah. it's so much of the history that people take as as fact, it was like, well, who wrote that? It's like the people that won the thing, that that war that you're reading about. Who won that war? Oh, look who gets to write about that war. It's the same sentiment but projected forward. Mm. Um, and, and that's the bit that I find the most intriguing about the work that we do. So so there's there's very kind of pragmatic work that we can be doing. We can be scanning for signals of change. Corporations can use that to make, uh, I guess, wiser decisions in the present but it's that work that I'm most interested in. Yeah, and, and, and it seems to be more and more people are paying attention to that, even, even through changing the climate and, 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 and larger things that are bigger than us and bigger than economies and bigger than lots of things suddenly gets people thinking about the future in a different way and that sort of spills into other things that they start thinking about. And then, you know, and, and then you're obviously looking for, can this, can this create action in people? Can this actually... Yeah. Get people to do something different. How do we change behaviour on a mass scale in order to achieve something better? So, and that's some really uh, an interesting space to be in. So, right back in the so, where'd you go to school? I'm a bush kid. Yeah, um, regional Queensland, way out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, pretty much. Maybe three thousand, three to four thousand people. Um, the only way I, f I find it helpful to give context is say that we were about four to five hours from our closest McDonald's. 
Um, people get it. That's a good thing, though. It is a good thing, though. We used to stockpile. It's a famous story where we used to go to KFC and have orders from half of the town. We'd stockpile a back seat with three kids and like 10 buckets of KFC. Oh, that's the mellow of heaven, isn't it? Exactly. And then we'd live off that for like the next two weeks, which is quite disgusting, but <laughs> hilarious in hindsight. Yeah, so a bush kid, I went to school with primary school and high school in Longreach in yep. Queensland, um, about, God, maybe 200 kids. I think there was 16 seniors in my year 12 class. Yeah. So really small school, intimate environment, which in hindsight, I really love. I think it's a real privilege once, you, once you're in the university or the secondary, you know, post-schooling kind of education, you become one small part of a giant oh, kind of mega machine. Yeah, and, and you're part of a, 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 a old-fashioned industrialization factory machine too uh, in terms of the way that a lot of universities and schools still operate and the way that they're set up for, you know, and even subjects in regards to these are the subjects that we're going to teach and it's the same subjects that we taught in 1800 and they don't change and are we yeah. going to, are we going to test you on these things and then we're going to send you out? It, and I guess that the, the thing of a small school that I, I have realised since, um, it's very relational. You know, it's you know the teachers quite intimately. You can't get up to any strife because by the time that you get home, you know, the teachers, my dad's horse training for one of the teachers' husbands and, and whatever. Everyone so knows. They do. They do. Um, I don't know. There's, there's something really intimate about that learning environment when it is relational. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's, that's such a big difference from a lot of the university education that we experience today. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very grateful. There are limited opportunities, of course, with a senior class of 15 people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the human dimension to that was just uh, irreplaceable in my and, mind. And because it was a small school, did you have the same teacher doing different subjects or were there a number of teachers and you sort of had different teachers for different subjects or how did it...? Uh, yeah, different teachers. It'd be a bit of a, a, bit of a double up. Yeah. So I'd say they were very good generalists. Uh, if one was sick, yeah. I don't think there was many relief teachers kind of floating around. So, yeah, we got access to a, a, a different range of teachers. And, and some of the beauty of living in the bush um, is that you also get access to new teachers. You know, it's the straight out of the university, which I actually really enjoyed. Brought a lot of diversity to the town and a lot of different kind of thinking. Yeah, a lot, a lot of energy and new ideas before they get ground up. Yeah, yeah. It was it was then kind of juxtaposed to uh, those that had lived there their whole life. Yeah. Went, to, went to teacher's college, came back and then was teach, have been teaching in the school their whole life. So it was a nice kind of combo of... And, what, and who were the earliest... Who, was there a teacher back in the day that you gravitated more towards in terms of the impact they had on you or the way that they um, approached the subject or something like that or... Do you know what? That just made me think of in, in year four, this is a peculiar memory, we had an American teacher and th this was a town with not a lot of diversity. So when someone from, you know, outside of Queensland comes into town, it's, it's, it's talk of the town. Yeah. And I loved him. I adored him. He was so animated. He, it, there was no education by numbers. Yeah. Um, which for me and the, the, the type of learner that I was, was so invigorating. I really, I was an average kind of student, um, got through school, did what I, what I needed to, but wasn't really engaged in that process. The, the kind of education by numbers, yeah. rote learning, who, who's got the best recall, yeah. just was not sticky for me. Um, and, and naturally you start to question then your own intelligence and yeah. your own capacity for learning yeah and he was so animated I remember him standing on tables and he, he used to play this game called stump the chump um totally off script but where we could pick any uh word from the dictionary and he would have to give a definition and then act the definition out oh, nice. and if we if we didn't get it right it's like the Mr what's the Simpsons teacher that's who it reminded me of Berg Bergstrom Mr. Yeah, Bergstrom. actually, when you were talking about that, I was think, actually thinking of Mr. Bergstrom. Yes, from, from I wasn't Simpsons Lisa when he, Simpson, when, but when he yes. arrived and the yeah the impact he had on Lisa and the uh, 
in that episode, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's, I was, what, I don't know, 10, and that still really resonates with me of just bringing creativity and play um, into the learning space and how that can just fundamentally shift the experience for learners. Oh, Captain, my captain. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And and what was so what was there uh what was he what was he teaching was he just sort of all couple of generalist or were there a couple of things that he was I think that you, I think in primary school you you're doing everything oh you're doing everything yeah. yeah so I came from the year before um a teacher that went to school with my dad um then to uh, Mr Palmer just because the first time I've said his name in <laughs> like decades uh, to his class and it was just mind-bending yeah. experience. Yeah, I, I think everyone remembers those early teachers that that went through the, that, you know, that came out of their teacher education system and were like, nah, I'm not doing this and then I'm going to approach this in a different way and I'm going to almost like let's burn the book and let's, uh, you know, it's it's that feeling of, you know, when you're a kid that like that this person's like wanting me to, almost like fire up the inner beast and a bit of chaos and let's just burn this whole thing down, man. Yep. Like it's, it's, you know, cause yeah, and you just, you and again, it, what it does, it fires your imagination and it fires up the possibilities of what you could do. I think the best teachers I've found it, even in the, uh, the masters of foresight that, um, I finished last year, um, the best teachers have been the ones that really ignite the learner's spirit and they're also very good at wrangling the internal system. Yeah. So they, they get they, they do the dance. They instinctively know that there are other ways of knowing and learning. Um, there are other ways of allowing students to kind of sense make their own way. Yeah. But they do that within the confines of the system that they work in. But they're very good at doing that dance between the two. Yeah, this the, the subtle rebellion that's yep. always going on. Yep. So, and and so and uh, around this time, and and I'm always I, I don't know why I like this question, but what was the and I mentioned this to you during the week. So, I think and we were talking about music at the start because I do think and I and I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday on Joe Rogan and he mentioned this quote about how, and this is a quote from Hunter S. Thompson that music is fuel, uh, that music is literally fuel, fuel fuel for your body and this great line that he believed that you could have a car um with no gas in the tank and he said if you play the music your music loud enough in that car it could go for at least another 50 miles with nothing there yeah um and i and i and i totally believe that music is fuel so what was the first fuel you discovered that wasn't from your parents that we all, because we all grow up listening to the stuff naturally in the house that our parents are listening to, but at some stage, you discover a band or a singer that's just yours, and you don't know how you found it, um, but this is yours and and nobody else's. What was your? Yeah, in just saying that, it reminded me of um, music had a very good playing loud music uh, over the top of like a. a a rattling 1983 Celica was a brilliant way to hide all of the mechanical issues. So <laughs> um, really good question. So I grew up in quite a musical house. Uh, Mum and dad were in a band, I think. Um, I'm not sure if that was together or in individual bands. Um, so you, you, did they play live and you, but you didn't get to see them or something? No, or they, no? no. I just had these old school as, as like almost a... a a visual reminder these old school amps that were that were always around so mum has a very musical family all of her family sing and whatever so there was music around um a lot of country music which I still adore but for me so I think I was about maybe 13 or 14 when I picked up the guitar there's not a lot to do Mm. in Longreach I played a lot of sport which was uh, a brilliant thing to do and, and when you're living in a small town. But um, I, I remember asking f- for my 14th birthday, circled a, uh, like a, a, an Ibanez, I can't even remember the name of it, some kind of cool guitar back then. And that's when I think I started to find what was the music that was really distinctly different from the music that I had grown up around. Yeah. In Longreach, there's no, well, there was no music teachers. Um, 
So I learnt guitar uh, from my sisters. So my sisters a few years, three years older than me, her guy friends. And the beautiful thing was, you know, I'm turning up. I'm just kind of dagging around them, saying, mm. "Can you teach me? Can you teach me?" Yeah. Hanging out with them on weekends. I'm sure it was very annoying to them. Um, <laughs> The beautiful thing was that it was, this is the music we're playing, so if you want to learn, this is the music that you'll learn. But through that process, it exposed me to music like Rage Against Machine. Yeah. Um, uh, Metallica was quite big back then. Yeah. And for me, this was like the ultimate, you know, if if you juxtapose Patsy Cline and Rage Against Machine, there's like an interesting kind of dynamic and mix in (laughs) there. But also as an introverted kid... And, and using music as the as the enabler, using the guitar as the enabler, playing that kind of music was so invigorating. So that 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 early kind of uh, '90s rock and hard rock and metal, um, much to the shock of many of my friends, I'm sure, was a really big influence on on both both my life, but then also um, I, I think in my own personal development. If, if that makes sense. So oh, yeah. And, Metall- and, yeah, I think yeah, Metallica's, just, uh, Metallica's just a beast. Like, if, if you know, if you want to do some workout or something, or like, you know, if you want to get fire your brain up before you're going into a, into some meeting or something, I don't know what it is, but, man, you put on some Master of Puppets and, damn, that's... Pff, yeah, en- Enter Sandman. The, yeah. That takes me back to kind of a, a time that I just loved I was so involved in the in music and then playing the guitar and for me that was such a beautiful way to learn exactly what you mentioned about that connection with body yeah and also a beautiful way to get out of yourself if that makes sense so I was in a school band for a while which um I started with a cousin what was the name what was the name of the band I can't remember the school band but we continued it after school for a couple of years or no actually through year 10 to 12, we had two names. The first name was Sponge Cake. It was like a girl rock band. And then that gave way to a more mature name of Madame Cactus. <laughs> so we'd play in the pubs. This was while I was at school, mind yeah, you. Yeah, nice. And the teacher owned the pub. So we'd play in the pubs for like parties and whatnot, but it was kind of that toned down version of rock. So yep. a bit of bit of no doubt. Um, yeah, that sort of early 90s yeah. indie rock stuff that was going on. Yeah. And I'd go from being this kind of quiet introvert to knee sliding. Yeah. Yeah, which used to blow the minds of both myself and a lot of people around me. But that's the beautiful thing. It just sh- takes you out of your shackles, I think. Um, that's and why I'm getting yeah, back when, into it. And when you're an introvert, you're like, okay, the gig's over. Everyone's going to go and party. It's like, no, nah, I just want to go home. I'm tired. Yeah, all that, exactly. All that extroverting has left me nothing in the tank and I yeah. need to go and now <laughs> refuel. And my knees hurt because yeah. I've just done like an ACDC kind of little knee slide. Oh, but... oh, we could talk about them for hours too. <laughs> um, so after high school, university? Yeah, so I moved. The, uh, I played a lot of sport as a kid. Um played cricket a lot and that became the lever to move. So I did the big move to Brisbane, which was the equivalent, I think, of moving to New York. Yeah. Like you just don't do it. And part of the – this, I think this is why I got into futures. So part of the story of growing up is that your future was set. You know, it was – it was there was a fixed range for women and this isn't that long ago. Mm. You were a hairdresser. Um, a teacher or a nurse. So for me it was... Or a mum. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely right. Um, For me it was kind of teacher's college was the obvious path and you go to Rockhampton because that's where the McDonald's and the KFC is. Um, But I didn't want to do that and I think playing cricket throughout my uh, high school years was such a good way to be exposed to different experiences in Brisbane so I decided to go to Brisbane, not go to Teachers College, uh, went and studied like, I should remember this, but it's like sports something, sports management. No, no one remember. I don't, I, I don't remember the half the stuff that I did. I know, it's like two careers it ago. Just, it was just, a, just get through it because everyone else is doing it. Yeah, it was like you're, you're good at sports, so this is a natural extension yeah. for you. And again, a very colonised and narrow view mm. of 
of what is possible for you, which I always found quite frustrating. Is it's like says who? Yeah. Who says? Who sets those tones of what you know? Those parameters. Sorry, of what I can and cannot do. Um, so I moved to Brisbane, and and there's almost like a pivotal moment for me. So I, I lived with a family. Um, and a friend who I'd played cricket with. So it was a, a good way to transition as a country kid because we didn't know anyone in Brisbane mm. and you don't go there. Um, that was like a big, big trip to go there. In the first week, I didn't know how to catch a bus. Um, I remember waiting to go to uni and just having to go home because I'd waited three hours because the bus didn't stop. And then my friend's like, did you stand up? I said, no. <laughs> so, you know, it was like a massive culture shock. Yeah. I actually remember kind of really struggling for the first six months but refusing to tell anyone about that because it was me making my own choice, which was a diversion from the path of, of the future that was set, if that makes sense. Yeah, like I'm, I'm going down this, yeah, I'm, I'm writing my own story now and, and, it's, and I'm finding it really hard but I'm not going to go back to the... Yeah, I'm 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 walking on this long grass right now, and I'm not going to go back to the grass that's all just well trampled down. And and for me, it was <clears throat> sorry. I don't know what that story is, but I know what it isn't. Yeah, and that's the primary inquiry for my whole career. So, so where did the so you did some sports stuff at university? Yeah, when did the the future side of things, the strategic side of things, the foresight. Where do we? What was the? What was the? Was it? What was the catalyst for that, or the moment, or the thing that you saw or read, or what? How did you move into that space? Um, moving into the foresight space, uh, that was kind of second wave career. So the first wave career was uh, high performance coaching. I played cricket then, um, senior cricket for Queensland, and also coached uh, underage Queensland teams. I'd been playing cricket since I was 11, so it was, a, that again, a natural kind of extension. Went to the UK, played a bit of county cricket over there, okay. as you do. Um, I actually went there, to, I actually went to Ireland to play Gaelic footy first and then stayed to play county cricket, but that's another story were for you, another time. Were you a, uh, a batter, bowler, all-rounder? What was your thing? All-rounder, I used to bowl leggies. Ooh, okay. Mm, I know, hardest craft in the game. Yeah. Yep. Um... Yeah, and then and then I think I just got cricketed out. Um, it's also a very narrow career options. And I think the tipping point for me was living in the UK, playing county cricket and coaching in the summer and then not really knowing what to do during the winter. So yeah. at the time I got a job um, at like Boots Pharmacy or something in a – just a – it was like a project role. Yeah. And it was a really nice transition because I'd – been working in high performance teams. Um, there's a lot of insight that you can take from mm. uh, professional sport into a workplace. Yeah, oh, and, and a lot of people are doing, you know, are definitely doing that these days. Yeah, absolutely. So it seemed like a natural kind of transition for me. Uh, it was originally kind of by accident around almost HR type work at the time, um, and I really enjoyed it. So, so I decided to come back from the UK, back to uni again, uh, business and something, something. That's yep. how interesting it was for yep. me at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I was already drifting off as soon as you said business, exactly. but I'm back again now. Exactly. Um, didn't really enjoy any of that. Again, it was that bumping into that same educational system of uh, education by numbers. Yeah, road, and, and it just learn. feels like too, I think a lot of the stuff, is just like it feels like old content, like... This is all old stuff that you guys are just repackaging yeah. from the 1950s and 60s and 70s, 80s, and you're putting a new spin on it in terms of the names of the thing. But the, if you dig underneath, it's still the same thing, man. Exactly. Yeah. For, and for, I think for me, the common thread is, has been, I've always, always been like a, an anti-scholar, more interested in unlearning yeah. than the learning, if that kind of makes sense. So. Any time that there was the this is it or, you know, this is the way or this is – I just found that really challenging to move on yep. from that point. There was no open space for inquiry, especially when doing a business degree. Um, well, that's the, and, that, and that's the same thing in the school system, you know, when, whenever you'd ask the teacher, when am I going to use this, uh, that's what got you detention. 
Like it's the application, like the, any any question that was around inquiry, digging deeper, application, uh, any, you know, it was almost a threat to the uh, the educational overlords and you got slammed. We, as as the, the holders of the knowledge. Yeah. So any kind of what I would call like a thick inquiry or curiosity, exactly that was seen as kind of a, a you're challenging the... Yeah. The collective, you know, the, the the wisdom here. Yep, we've got a rebel in our midst and they must be crushed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like nerdiest, most diligent rebel that you'll come across. But I did find education really difficult for that yeah. process. Same through school, but then also through um, the, the first couple of degrees outside of high school. Yeah. Um, didn't really enjoy it. Then decided I wanted to go back overseas Ended up in Darwin, not quite the same thing, um, but still felt very different. Mm. Uh, and then like every good Darwin uh, uh, resident, you become a public servant, which I did for a few years. Yeah. Then I started to move into like workforce planning. It was saying, well, you know, let's let's think about the workforce more strategically. What does that look like? Um, and that's when I started to hit the limits to say, hang on, the way that we think about the future isn't effective. Yeah projecting what we have done in the past into the future mm. and assuming more of the same yep. doesn't feel effective. But at the very same time, I felt very frustrated because I was the person that was saying, I know that's a problem, but but what about what's emerging? You know, that that, that may be redundant. Yeah. This, is, this is an entirely new way or a new paradigm or an entirely new way of thinking. So we might be solving the wrong problems here. Yeah. But no one really cared because, you know, we want to solve the pro- this problem that's in front of us. And, and for you on the, on the, as you got into the workforce planning and that was the, you know, fired you up, was there a, you know, in, in this whole futurist space, was there a person that you latched onto or something that you heard or read that said, oh my God, that's, that's it. That's the thing that I want to, or this person's, their, their beliefs or what they're thinking is exactly what I've been looking for. I just didn't know it. Was that, what was your, yeah. what was your in for that? There's probably a thread with, with everyone you speak to that there's there. I had a brilliant boss in the NT. She was a yeah. geologist, the NT hockey captain, master's captain, um, uh, an organizational development expert and she was so curious it was brilliant my my first week working under her um she was putting books on my desk that uh, I just couldn't even comprehend at the time it was like Margaret Wheatley and Peter Sengi and all of these and I'm like okay um I'm 22 but and she's like read this read this read this yeah yeah yeah. so so I really have her to thank for a lot of almost the finding a space where I got permission to be Curious, permission to look at the shadow, permission to ask. What's her name? Jenny Stevenson. Jenny Stevenson. She Go Jenny. was, she is a life changer for many people. You know, people followed her across the public service yeah. and they still do yeah. and still would. But it's, it's the range, her own mutancy made her so interesting. So you know, as a scientist come organisational development expert that plays sport, that a whole bunch of ama- like a mashup of amazing things yeah. meant that she could see the world through many different lenses. And almost like, I guess she was doing what you said before was that she was practicing almost that subtle rebellion, but within the system. So she's still, Masterly. she knows she much, she yeah. knows how the system works and she's not going to burn the system down and break the system, but she is going to do little things to make it better. But it, you know, but it's, it's still within the, the structure of what's there. She was a master at that. I think she really taught me um, stealth influence. Yeah. Uh, particularly as an introvert, you know, there's this assumption that you need to be, I don't know, front and center, and and I, I am never going to be like that, which is absolutely fine. That's also part of my superpower, as I've come to learn. But she really taught me how to nudge and shift a conversation without people kind of even knowing it yeah nice it was masterful inside the public service i think if you can get things done the public service you can get them done anywhere yeah because it's you're you're trying to especially there's so the 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 volume of people this you know you're trying to almost in a way shift behavior on such a mass scale that if you can get any little win it's huge yeah and i think i actually think part of um 
it might have been something she had suggested I go to, like a professional development. And I, there was a futurist speaking at the time. It was a breakfast. I can remember thinking, um, is anyone listening because they're eating? Um, and there, I, I now speak to Steve. Steve Tyatt was a, a lovely guy, still still working mm. in this space. Um, he was talking about shifts in worldviews and he was showing photos from... I don't know the fifties and and the and the provocation that those photos, um, I, I guess, created in the audience, and just as a sentiment to say how worldviews have fundamentally shifted over that what, time. What sort of photos from the nineteen fifties was he showing? Oh, it was like it was like a a grandfather holding a baby but smoking, oh, and yeah. yeah, so it's kind of saying. And that's when I got really interested in what is the underpinning paradigm or way of knowing or worldview that is driving this image of the future or that image of the future. And what have we assumed and privileged in that process? Yeah. So it's showing kind of those shifts in, in worldview and how that has changed over time, which I just found fascinating. So what's your take on, you know, so let's look at workforce planning of the future because that's... I hear a lot of it. People are talking about we got to plan for the future and the workforce and all that sort of stuff. And we mentioned this before. What? What? Are, there's a bunch of stuff that people are probably focusing on that they shouldn't be focusing on, and there's probably some other things that they uh, should be focusing on, but it's not getting the attention. But it's actually really important stuff. And you mentioned this before when we were having a chat just before we started around the shadows. Talk, tell, tell me more about the shadows and 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 how that relates to what people should probably be paying a bit more attention to when it comes to the future and workforce planning. Yeah, so so workforce planning for me and, and the culmination of a workforce planning career that I then hit the limits of to say, hang on, that we need to think about the future differently here. There must be a better way because we're just recycling the past um, with some shiny tech around the edge of that. Um, is that we need to flip the approach. We need to start by saying not what we currently have, but start by saying what is changing in our environment and our business and our workforce environment over the next, whatever, 10 years. Yeah. In that space, from that space, from that plausible kind of change space, what would we need to be resilient and thriving regardless of what scenario might manifest? And then working back to say, what do we currently have? So that's a fundamental shift in the way that we think about workforce planning, where we typically project what we have, the same workforce that we have, change it a little bit around the edge and assume more of the same. Yeah. So that's a really big shift. So that's, I've almost been uh, accidentally upending the profession over the last six years, um, which has been the beautiful thing about studying strategic foresight, mm. more structure about how we, uh, and I guess a more methodical approach about how we think about the future. But for me, the, the things that I'm finding really um, challenging at the moment is, is the grand narratives around the future of work. Um, firstly, what does that even mean? Yes. <laughs> um, but again, I, 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 I often talk about we shape our language, then our language shapes us. Yeah. And when we use phrases like the future of work, um, it then narrows our inquiry yeah. a lot. Um, but it's also rhetoric. It's like, what are we even t kind of talking about here? And we've isolated work as if it's its own separate space and as if it doesn't, it isn't impacted from shifts in the economy, a changing planet, you know. Yeah, that, that, that idea of work that you still get up and you get in the car and you drive to a building and you do some work and you go home. I mean, that's that in itself is just absolutely fading away. So I think the things that are really emerging for me in that space is firstly, what do we even mean by that? Let, let's have a thicker inquiry about work and let's not disconnect it from other changes in our environment, planet, you know, social, social inequality, um, the economy. But the, the parts, the shadow parts for me is the, is the conversation of what are we talking about? What isn't being spoken spoken about here? Uh, what is privileged in that image of the future of work where we just assume automation? It's this underpinning uh, both action and ideology of automation that we're all subscribing to, which totally narrows our inquiry about work and yeah. how it is changing. Um, good futurists will say we'll look beyond the scope of technology. 
Because um, that's the that's almost just the default that everyone kind of jumps to straight away when they talk about future of work. It's like this many jobs are going to be taken away by AI, and and but it's it's there's such a, a technology focus on the future. That, exactly, and that's that becomes almost the focus that people talk about is how a robot's going to Im- impact our jobs. So the conversations that we aren't having because our future our images are kind of co-opted through that process, and we also have to ask who's leading that. Yes, narrative. Who's leading those conversations? The conversations we aren't have, and and I'm now really focused on, is around the future of workers. Like we're speaking from an organisational perspective, and we're never really speaking about um, how things are changing from a worker perspective. So whether that's um, an increasingly precarious workforce around secure work, whether that's you know, it's kind of a trend that I call work as a public health issue. Um, if we can speak really truthfully, work is killing people. Mm. Um, and now we're quantifying that yeah. uh, as well. Uh, whether that's around gig economy exploitation, whether that's around uh, decreasing uh, worker collective rights, um, job insecurity, a, ho- a whole range of things. We're not talking about it from that level or we're not having rich conversation about what do we mean about automation? What are we actually saying? Because the technology isn't the decision maker. There are humans mm. behind that making that decision. And it's often made on a really thin basis. We just assume that's the future. And now we're saying, well, everyone's automating. It's like the toilet paper thing at the moment with <laughs> coronavirus. I know. It's a similar kind of concept though. It's like we don't even ask and have a thick inquiry about why are we doing it and what do we even mean by that? No, it's that, uh, you know, and, and yeah, it's it's the, and I was reading this morning about the, you know, the whole coronavirus and in and, and regards to the toilet paper thing was that, you know, that combination of loss aversion and herd and herd, and herd behaviour. Yeah. Uh, and you bring those two together and everyone doesn't, doesn't even know why they're going out, but they just know, hey, if everyone's going out to buy toilet paper, there's got to be something going on, man. I've got to, I, I don't want to be left out of this thing. And they all then, then jump on and it's, and it, I think sometimes it's a, the same thing sort of happens, and you, uh, you know, you see it on LinkedIn and things like that. It becomes like a couple of words that people start using, and then you get this tipping point, and then everyone's talking about future of work, or there are the, there are these words that get thrown around. But it's almost like, as you said, does anyone know what that word even means, or in what context people are using it, or what's yeah. what's implicit in that, and and you know, what conversations aren't we having? And I feel like a lot of the conversations we aren't having as a result of that co-opting our images um, of the future is around the worker. Um, it is, you know, we're not having conversations um, on the flip side about the shifts I'm starting to see from work as, as the central role in our life and our identity. And we're shifting away from that, which is very interesting to see. And that's driven by trends like downshifting, although most people I know um, now um, work part-time or they do different types of work Um, we're seeing shifts away from work is at the center of who I am Um, my identity is not wrapped up in my job anymore yes but my but I find my identity in other places in in what I call other work so I also advocate that we need to have a thicker conversation about what work is we need to move it it's been co-opted from um uh the work that I do, I guess, pre-modernity around um, tending to a farm or whatever to my paid role. Yeah. But for me, I see work as, yes, my paid employment, but craft, hobby, yeah, uh, work on myself, my, my inner work, care, a whole range of other things. And if, when we expand the definition of work, we have a very different view of what we need to get from our paid role, but also about what other things are life-affirming for me. What other types of work can I be doing here or what feels like the right work for me in this time? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point around the, that, the word. But as you said, it's actually, if you if I'm just thinking about this now, if I look at all the, the conversations going on about work, it's, none of it's really about the worker. That's just no. the, when you just said that, I was like, yeah, none of it's actually about the individual. It's all just a, you know, this is the, the again, it's just huge numbers and it's workers in the Western world, but it's just about the, it's the, it's such an organizational lens on the future of work and it's not about the people at all. No, and that that's the lens that I'm really intrigued to look at this kind of conversation through. 
And, and what else arises when we start to add the shadow into that conversation? How does that expand, you know, our range of options or the depth in our conversation? Um, I think good futurists do that. We're saying what, it, what isn't being said here and how do we elevate that in the conversation? But also from a personal perspective, I think, you know, I, I talk about these times as uh, we're in transition times for me. So I think we're hitting the limits of old ways of doing, knowing, being, old systems, old paradigms, old structures are starting to break down. At the same time, new ways are emerging, but they haven't quite manifest yet. So we might see parts of capitalism breaking down or or whatever, like Mm. you can zoom into the micro or the macro. Um, Planetary pushback, whatever the level, um, new ways are emerging and there's this in-between space, which for me is inherently experimental. We, we, don't, we know what it isn't, but we don't quite know what yeah. it is yet. And that and freaks people out. It does, yeah. And, it, and, and we can kind of go two ways. We can default and double down on the old ways, um, which some of them we need to preserve. It, it's, not, it's not either or, it's kind of and both. But it also requires a different kind of inquiry, a different approach to sense-making, a different approach to learning when we're in this kind of transitionary time. And I feel like we're in that for work. Work for me, I feel like the old ways are losing fit for purpose. People are losing meaning in their work, um, the structures of work, the whole range of things. At the same time, we're experimenting with new ways, whether that's working in the gig economy, um, which is also has its exploitation, don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, And that's what I've been, in the the last kind of 12 months, I've really been connecting with a lot of people in that in-between space. It's like, I don't know what I want or I don't know what it is, but I just have this innate desire for something else. Yeah, but I know what I don't want or I know I don't don't want that thing. Yeah, and that's often a a very helpful inquiry lens through sense-making of total uncertainty when we don't know. That's kind of been my professional career lens. I know what it isn't. I know it isn't an MBA, but I don't know what it is. So you kind of fumble your way around until you find it or you find the people or you make that kind of connection. Yeah. That's, uh, and, and yeah, and I think that it's, as you said, the MBA, I think the that in itself, that the, the whole uh, formal education university system is going to be going through a few uh, changes over time and in, in regards to what you know and in, in terms of what people are coming out with but also what is valued at the other end yeah that's part of this that's another good example of this transition so for me uh, education ideally and perhaps was in the past um, something that would help you with almost like a a paradoxical mission of architecting a career but then also help you design the society that you want to live in. Uh, I think education has been co-opted now around job readiness. Yeah. So it's everything about getting you ready for a job, um, which really narrows the boundaries of our societal inquiry outside of getting a job or being, you know, developing our skills for a job. It's like, no, no, there's actual kind of learning and innate curiosity that is outside of those realms that is now long, no longer valued. And I think as a society, yeah. that's the margins that we are now missing. The education is a social process that helps also define the society that we want to live in. Yeah, and that's why whenever you hear about, you know, the arts being slashed, it's just like, yeah. you're killing your soul, man. That's like at, at, at university... I didn't know what job I wanted to do. I had no idea, so I just did all the art stuff. So I did all the, you know, but what I was doing was, um, you know, just giving myself some depth on a few things um, as opposed to doing a law degree. And I think I think that's what we're bumping into now. We're starting to question that. Um, I've been asking almost a, a stealth question to some of my friends and, and peers around you know, what do you do? Yes, yes, okay, that, that's your paid job. But what is it that you really do? What is, what is the right work for you? What feels like the right work? And I only asked this yesterday to a couple of people. And it's things like, you know, this is my job, but I really want to build out my sewing business because I have a, a view of how we can 
you know, be more sustainable. Um, I really want to work with underprivileged women to help them build financial literacy. I really want to work with um, uh, Indigenous communities and and do futures work. Mm. I'd say 70 to 80% of the time, probably more, it's actually got nothing to do with their paid job. Yeah. And that for me is the, the, the missed space, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how, and how do we, or, you know, how, how do people get access into more of the, the shadow, if you will, in terms of the stuff that they're kind of aware of or don't even want to, they know, they know, they know that's there, but they can't. Make yep. it, bring it out into the sunlight kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I, look, I think most people have that, whether yeah. it's, the, it's the professor at uni that's, you know, his experiment is around using dance and theatre to, to deliver kind of uh, education. Yeah. It, everyone I think I've been speaking to has that and we're starting. I think there's like a collective consciousness waking up to that now and that's part of this I think pushback of work is not that my paid job is not at the center of my identity um I need to still be get paid so it's the dance of the in-between yeah um but I now want space to do other things that feel life-affirming for me that connect me with community that that uses what I know um in a way to create the society that I actually want to live in very different kind of conversations and and activity if that makes sense yeah that totally makes sense okay i think we're um i think i might have to put it in uh go listen to some metallica now so uh we're going to wrap it up nice Uh, it was so good to talk to you uh we're going to keep on talking because i next time we'll talk more about the ahoy hoy stuff that i know you're getting into and i think that's gonna may have a huge impact on on getting people to start thinking about some of these spaces that they're probably not aware of but they feel is not quite right um so yeah thank you so much and um yeah we'll uh, we'll keep on talking to be continued to be continued with a guitar and a whiskey oh most definitely we'll uh we'll do this we'll do this after lunch next time brilliant just to be responsible absolutely okay all thanks right. to you all right thank you